Hello and welcome back to Cal's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be covering the Babylon 5 Season 3 episode, A Late Delivery from Avalon. So this episode uh, is kind of like a one-shot kind of thing where uh, it has a subplot that connects to everything going on, but it's kind of a singular, cohesive story about a one man's or like one man's journey through something and it's beautifully touching um may i say um when on upon first viewing it it can kind of seem weird and cheesy almost but there's something enduring about it and then when you get the reveal and the ending happens and you just you feel you feel touched um it's almost a comic book way of looking at something I'm reminded of Brian Michael Bendis's uh, issues examining a kid uh, whose father was killed, uh, and and the, and, the, and sort of how Ben Yurick investigates that. That, that. that kind of reminds me of this episode of uh, uh, this uh, you know this man shows up on the station. His name is Arthur, and he claims he is the King Arthur, the once and future king. From you know, from legend, he's the Arthurian legend. Legend, he is the great and wonderful king, the the, the all-encompassing good person, who did nothing nothing wrong in his life. You know, blah 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 blah. The very romanticized version of what King Arthur who was and who and who he represented and all that jazz. And obviously, this can't be true. What I love about it is the way we take time to to analyze it. Basically, you have pretty much Franklin Franklin and and Marcus are like the main POV characters for Arthur's plot and you have Franklin who's going this can't possibly be true very cynical and then you have Marcus's of uh, view of why can't it be Marcus even brings up a great point of uh, you know uh, Sheridan was interrogated by the literal Jack the Ripper why can't he be real? Why can't he be the real King Arthur? Who says the Vorlons didn't put him in some cryosleep something or whatever? And this is the real genuine article. Uh, he has a point. That's what I love about it, is that there is a genuine point that Marcus makes. And while it's quickly dismissed in favor of the, uh, the, the fact that Arthur clearly is a human of this time, his speech pattern is idiosyncratic for uh, the time frame that King Arthur supposedly existed, if he existed at all. Uh, and basically there is there's so much uh, weighing against it, but Marcus is more than willing to accept it. Because if you think about it, uh, you know, there is this wonderful sort of narrative about cynicism. Uh, you know, we we as a culture have moved to very cynical thinking over the course of years and years and years, and collectively we have grown far more cynical, um, at least in my experience of noting the way people interact. You have people who decry the idea of Superman and say Superman is boring and stupid and shouldn't exist and Superman should have all these flaws and blah, blah, blah. And these people clearly don't understand who Superman is, what he represents, and what he's there to do. Uh, and th that is all a consequence of our very jaded, cynical look at life. If someone came uh, came and said, I'm the second coming of Christ, you know, to take the Judeo-Christian look at things, uh, which people have done this, we're obviously going to think it's a fraud, fluke. 
you know, a cult leader, someone absolutely insane. So if someone says, I'm the second coming of Arthur, King Arthur, we're going to go, ha, what? Uh, but Marcus is willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. He knows what this universe is capable of, is more than willing to, uh, to, to look by that, especially considering uh, what, what happens later, even when he it is disproven that he is King Arthur, there is a hint of sort of fantastical optimism that lies within Marcus, and I'll get to that. So basically, when when it comes out that uh, Arthur is uh, actually this uh, that guy called David, who was the uh, gunnery sergeant for the Prometheus, which was the ship that made first contact with Mimbari, and they misinterpreted the signals, as we well know, this was a well-established fact, uh, that the open gun ports were a sign of respect from the Mimbari. This was not uh, how the humans perceived it. They saw it as a threat. They fired. Uh, and because they didn't have the defenses up, you know, severely wounded the Minbari ship, killing their great leader Dukat, and thus causing a holy war to begin. All because of a simple misunderstanding. And this reveal is all about, uh, it's a way to analyze post-traumatic stress disorder and psychosis. Uh, but I, what, what I love about Marcus, and while you can't really agree with him, you ultimately agree with Franklin, there's a sense of optimism that lies in that belief because he was in that situation once. Not quite the same, but similar. Of Marcus feels like, because he didn't listen to, uh, to, to his brother and the warning of the shadows and everything, he got his brother killed and his colony destroyed, he feels responsible. How dare I survive? And that's exactly what Arthur is feeling. How dare I? All these people were murdered because I made a mistake. And it was a mistake that wasn't technically his fault. He was merely following the orders given to him. And while there's a lot of debate about how you interpret orders, and I brought this up about the illegal order and order idea, uh, in the previous arc, uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, the, the blame must be split. And uh, it's not wholly his fault. It was a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation. And that kind of thing is just heartbreaking to think about that he has suffered through all of this. And so... Franklin and Marcus must come to the must come to the conclusion of whether they tell him he's who he really is, and Marcus goes, "Why don't we just let him be?" But, you know, uh, he even quotes uh, a person in here: "Better the illusions that exalt us than ten thousand troops." Uh, the entire idea is fantasy versus reality. Can one person exist in a fantasy and still live? Is that is there such a thing? Can you wholly survive not believing you are who you truly are and still live a life? Does this really work? And should he know the truth? This truth broke him once. Why is it not going to break him again? Uh, and even though he is ultimately not responsible, he still feels guilty. And even if we absolve him of that guilt, there is no guarantee that he will absolve himself of the guilt. It is a seriously hard to answer question, and while I ultimately agree with Franklin that he must be told, 
Uh, he even brings up the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm, and by lying to him and keeping the fantasy that he, that Arthur is actually King Arthur is doing nothing but harm. Uh, and I do absolutely agree with Franklin, but it is a hard decision. There is no right or wrong here. There is only what you can do and hope for the best. The living in a fantasy versus reality, what is better? It's really hard to decide that kind of thing. If your life is so horrible, why is escaping in a fantasy that bad? We talk all the time as humans about escapism, escapist literature, escapist TV, uh, mind-numbing stuff to make us forget our own life. And what if our life was so bad that we had felt so much anger and guilt and sadness and depression over something that we just wanted to escape entirely and the world of fantasy. Is that wrong? I'm not sure. I don't have the answers. I am just a 22-year-old kid. But it's a hard question. I think ultimately, sooner or later, you do have to face the music. And maybe you need to go get help, and the psychiatrist's help, or something. Uh, but you have to deal with the guilt. You cannot bottle up your emotions. Sooner or later, you know, your emotions will pile up and burst. And you've got to deal with these situations. You have to deal with it. it there is no easy answer here. Life is not easy. And it, it, it's, it's a really good moral question. Uh, and I love that, uh, you know, that basically it, it's all about it's all about fantasy versus reality, optimism versus pessimism. It, it's an all-encompassing sort of story revolving around Franklin and Marcus, and then you have the how it affects Arthur and how he's getting very little sleep and how he's having all these flashbacks and stuff, which, by the way, the flashbacks themselves are beautifully done, filmed in black and white with slightly slowed-down footage and done at, uh, at odd angles, uh, including a couple Dutch angles, meaning that we are confused and sort of uh, sort of put in the headspace of Arthur himself. So uh, it sort of creates this fog of confusion and sort of otherworldliness, which a lot of PTS sufferers describe um, when they have flashbacks as this otherworldly feeling, this 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 odd sensation, this fog. Uh, so it's a good way to sort of visually uh, show that. Uh, and now I'm gonna I'm gonna go back before the big reveal and, and sort of talk about uh, the Jakar bit here, and I, I want to talk about the ending uh, of it, and then I'll get into some of the minor stuff of this episode. So the Jakar bit. Uh, so so Arthur goes around and wants to go. Uh, he he goes to help. The, uh, the lurkers, and, which, by the way, there's a great moment where Marcus kind of has this this uh, uh, scene where he talks about uh, fairness and unfairness, uh, how he used to believe that it was in uh, incredibly bad for the world to be so unfair, but then he realized if the entire world was fair, how horrible it would be to know that all the punishments that we received was duly rewarded and fair because of what we did that we were that we were so horrible enough to deserve this punishment and so he uh, so he has come to accept that life inherently is unfair and fairness must be unfair it's a it's a deeply deeply cynical view 
And yet I help I can't help but agree with it. Because at the end of the day, you know, if everything is fair and everything is equal, then all the horribleness of humanity is deserved. And that all the punishments that we get is deserved. It's it's a deeply, deeply cynical view. And I tend to think of myself as an optimist, but I happen to agree with Marcus on this. And um, but anyway, uh, so Arthur goes to help this woman, uh, which, by the way, the music in it, uh, the, the, the sort of musical cues throughout this episode are just beautiful to listen to and just glorious. Uh, but uh, and, and he he goes to help this woman uh, who uh, who's had a picture of, of her husband stolen. Her husband had died and it was her only memory of him. Her only possession left that reminds her of her late husband. So he goes to retrieve it from these thugs, and uh, these thugs outnumber him, and uh, they're, they're getting even more reinforcements, and Jakar oversees this and jumps in. And I love this, because Jakar is a Narn, and I've talked about before that the Narns have a very take-charge mentality, it's, a, it's more about your actions and, and how you're perceived in strength than anything else. If you remember that one scene uh, a few seasons ago of, uh, uh, of when uh, Jakar got stabbed by the knife but, uh, but uh, refused to falter even though he was poisoned and, and literally walked away in dignity, all just to prove to the Narns on the station that he, uh, that he was worthy of being followed. So... Uh, he has, for his own safety, and at request of all other Norns, been sitting on the station doing administrative work, trying to buy the resistance more time, trying to get weapons, trying to get supply routes, all this stuff, but it's not hands-on, it's not actually... He's not seeing the results of his actions of doing good, and in administrative work, within of itself, is full of morally moral ambiguity and grayness. And he is dealing with gun smugglers, some less reputable people that are stealing information and stuff like this and smuggling. It is not exactly clean work, and it's work that he doesn't even get to see the results of. He just has to hope and hear, and wait, and so. Just this once, he hops into this situation and helps Arthur because it's very satisfying. It's so liberating because he finally can take charge and do the right thing. And he talks about this in that great drunken scene with, with Arthur, which is absolutely hilarious. And Katsalus plays it to the nines of just... You know, they made a very satisfying thump, and it was so wonderful. There was no moral ambiguity, no great evil, uh, you know, uh, presence o overriding us. They were the bad guys, and we were the good guys. And they made a very satisfying thump. It's glorious, because finally Jakar has the capacity to see his actions affect change and not be swallowed up in the administrative and bureaucracy of everything and not be swallowed up in the moral ambiguity and grayness of everything and it was very simple black and white these thugs were bad we were good we gave them a good thrashing we saved the day we helped this woman the end uh it's it was so wonderful to see that for jakar because if after having lost so much 
he finally gets to feel again. And you can't describe just how liberating that had to have been for him. And how wonderful that felt. Um, now, the the ending of the Arthur plot, and I love the way that we, we gradually sort of find out over time that he was the one who fired the first shot, that sort of the, the Earthman Bari War. Uh, but the big thing is is the uh, the ending, I think, is a bit on the nose. So they are uh, dealing with the situation, and they come to realize that that he'll only be free if he gets quote unquote just like the real King Arthur. Of uh, he'll only he'll only be free of this pain if Excalibur's return to the Lady of the Lake. If Excalibur represents his shot his shot and his apology uh, effectively him him apologizing for what he accidentally did then the lady of the lake is so obviously delen so fucking obvious and so in, in, in that regard I'm sitting there, and Franklin and Marcus is just are just sitting there, literally expositing to us, the audience, the legend of King Arthur, and going, "Hmm, I wonder who the Lady of the Lake is." He came here intentionally. This is a Mimbari-sponsored station. Why would he come here? Gee, I wonder, Marcus and Franklin, if it's Delenn, the half-human, half-Mimbari. It was so obvious. And I think that could have been handled so much better. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how I would have written it, but I think it could have been handled with a lot more subtlety because it was blatantly obvious to me when watching Lady of the Lake is Delenn. Done. Um, so that that's just that's just my opinion on that, whatever. Um, but the way it is used to explore uh, PTSD and the fact that he goes pretty much comatose until... Excalibur is taken from him by Delenn, and then at the end, when he goes off to help uh, the non-resistance, that he he wanted so badly to make amends and apologize for what he believed was responsible. You know, how dare I survive while all these other people were massacred by a mistake I made, that he goes, connecting to the Jakar thing, to a place where there is just a straight-up I must help. I must do the right thing. Period. There's wrongs being done. I need to help. And it's glorious that he was able to recover and make amends. And it's the kind of conclusion that just makes you feel warm and happy and wonderful. It's a great introspective looking one-shot episode. It's wonderful. Now the other bits of this episode is the Garibaldi stuff and the Ivanova and Sheridan bit. So the Garibaldi bit is a nice bit of comedy, but also some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful look at bureaucracy uh, and also the little things. And what I mean by that is that they have broken away from Earth Alliance. So if you think about it, the post office going to raise their fees because now they're having a danger of shipping the mail it makes perfect sense uh it's it's hilarious when you think about it but also so true 
And the fact that Garibaldi's having a hard time getting this one package because of the bureaucracy and all the legal legality that is wrapped up in that, and especially because something that looks so simple on the surface, such as the mailman, the post office, uh, being wrapped up in so much uh, like bureaucracy that in red tape that you can't accomplish anything without going through about a thousand different people because of the one complication of Babylon 5 having the audacity to declare independence is hilarious, and it's great levity while also being some great socially conscious writing. It's just those little things and those little touches that work so well. And speaking of that, the Ivanova Sheridan stuff where uh, they realize they need they need secure shipping routes. They need they need a secure line of defense. They need uh, they need to keep Babylon Five afloat outside of just operating as they were because they were being funded by the Earth Alliance. And they no longer have that funding, and regardless of whatever they're doing, they do have to have some form of income. Uh, and so they they look and they this they decide to propose the League of Alliance to uh, to uh, help help in the defense of Babylon Five so long as they could continue operating as they were as a neutral territory as um, as the peacekeepers, but also at the same time. Uh, give people examples of why Babylon 5 is necessary to the economy of the overall galaxy. It's sort of unifying everybody around Babylon 5, and this will become important later, but regardless of that, the, the sort of idea behind it is we need to keep Babylon 5 afloat. Once again, the little things. Little things matter like this, and I love it. Now, there's an idea proposed at the end that I really like, uh, because I talked about before way back in Grail that Babylon 5 has a lot of parallels to other pieces of fiction, including King Arthur in Arthurian legend. And there is a, a sort of hypothesis proposed at the very end of the episode that is, Kosh uh, is Merlin, Franklin is Percival, Marcus is Galahad, Sheridan is Arthur, Ivanova is Gawain, uh, Mordred is obviously Morden, and then they question who Morgana Le Fay is. Now, I will get into spoiler territory in a moment to talk about that, but I like that that JMS was willing to acknowledge his influences. I mean, Zaha Doom comes from uh, other pieces of fiction, such as Forbidden Planet, uh, and some uh, some instances of things later be pulled from other things. The Rangers themselves, which, by the way, we find out how their pen what their pendant means, and it's essentially the Mimbari idea of uh, you, you know unification and looking towards the future and everything coming in threes. So humans plus Mimbari equal the future, uh, and, I, and I quite like that. Uh, and, and everything they taught him also came in threes, which I thought was quite fun. But the Rangers, the idea of the Rangers actually comes from Lord of the Rings uh, and stuff like that. There's a lot of things pulled from other pieces of fiction, and he's sort of lampshading the fact that he is influenced by other works. Uh, now, I real quickly want to touch upon a couple spoilers uh, before I head out here. So, uh, who Morgana Le Fay is? I believe that is Anna Sheridan personal opinion but since she is showing up at the end of the season and uh the, this all of this uh foreshadowing is becoming important pun intended uh you know that i believe anna sheridan would be morgana Le Fay, uh especially because of the manipulations and the, the the connections to arthur uh being his sister uh and stuff like that where it's sort of 
uh, where, where Anna is, is Sheraton's wife and how it leads to confusion and, and all that stuff in Arthurian legend. And then one connection that I only recently thought about is uh, there's been a theory of that Merlin uh, was able to tell the future because he aged backwards, that he was he literally aged backwards through time. It's not exactly Benjamin Budding. In, in, instead, he literally is from the future and then literally ages normally backwards through time. So what would be 2020 for us, uh, it, whereas 2021 would be the next year for us, uh, it would be 2019 is the next year for him. And Marcus even brings this up. Now, isn't this interesting? Because only a few episodes from now, we're going to have War Without End, in which Claire travels back in time with Zashlis and creates the Great Council, which is kind of like a Knights of the Round Table, uh, and forms Mimbari religion and Mimbari society and all that jazz because he knows the future, because he's from the future. Fascinating idea to think about in connection to the King Arthur parallels. Uh, but anyway, that is pretty much all I have for this episode. A fantastic, fantastic episode. Um, this is a very, just very touching episode. Nice one-shot. The way it looks at the effects of war and uh, how war is never pretty. The war and guarantee in war is that you will die like a dog for no reason at all. And the the, the simplicity of one shot. We talk all the time, especially here in America, about the shot heard around the world that began the American Revolution. But we never think about that there's always shots that begin wars. Uh, and how do the people who fire that first shot feel? How do they feel knowing that they started a war that killed X number of people, thousands, millions, what have you? How do they feel knowing that it's all because they pulled the trigger. Even if it, even if ultimately they shouldn't be responsible for it, and it is the responsibilities of their or the superiors for giving them that order, they still have to have the the psychological scars of having first pulled the trigger. It's a great look at that PTSD in a nutshell, and just everything in regards to that fan fantastic episode and michael york does a wonderful performance as arthur anyway i'll see you next time until then bye